Thanks for tuning in. We're very, very excited to welcome today Sheila and Jonah from the Atlassian team. They're both veterans of uh, the team there, and so they're going to be able to share a lot about the evolution of um, the MOPS function and RevOps and how PLG exists at Atlassian. So we're very excited to have you both here. Um, maybe before starting, uh, we'd love to get a quick intro uh, from both of you. And maybe we can start with Sheila, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Atlassian. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, my name is Sheila Head. I am the marketing operations lead here at Atlassian. Um, and so I've got a team of marketing operations managers and um, uh, we're part of the global marketing ops um, umbrella at Atlassian, which is kind of a, a new a newer team. Um, I came up from the customer lifecycle marketing team at Atlassian, and I have a very traditional digital marketing demand generation background where I always kind of gravitated towards operations and less on the, so to speak, creative side of marketing. And so that's sort of where I got my start, just kind of wearing a lot, lots of hats, but I've been really able to focus on marketing operations at Atlassian. And it's been quite a ride and an evolution since I started, but it's been great. So thanks for having me. And, and you've been at Atlassian for how many years? Uh, it's going to be five years at the end of the year. Congrats. It's a, yeah, it's a long, long tenure and probably a lot of, lot of change since the start. Indeed. Yes. It's been great. Cool. And uh, Jonah, if you want to give us uh, also the quick rundown. Yeah. And again, thanks for, thanks for having us here. It's a pleasure. Um, so I've been in Atlassian, it'll be four years uh, in about a month and a half from now. Um, I've had the, the pleasure of working with Sheila that entire time. Uh, I was with Sheila when we started the marketing operations team and we were both part of that CLM team. I actually started as the head of enterprise demand gen um, and operations when I first joined um, the company. And I've been fortunate to have a, a career which has spanned lead generation on the B2C side B2B enterprise demand generation, marketing operations. I, I think operations and technology has always been a part of what I've done. And I've, I've gravitated towards the nooks and crannies of the business where I found like there, there wasn't tech and process and, and, and work to improve that even when that wasn't uh, exclusively what I was doing. And so I, this has been a really great fit um, from that perspective to get to work on it full time. Uh, and I uh, run a sub team within uh, GMOPS, like Sheila was referring to, called the Lifecycle Marketing Operations Team. And um, we're composed of, like Sheila was saying, marketing operations managers, but also um, automation managers and some system architecture and process and design managers that really holistically look at taking care of all of the, the business or revenue aligned stakeholders um, in the company and then applying uh, marketing ops to them. That's awesome. And, and CLM, uh, the acronym is Customer, uh, Customer Lifecycle Marketing, right? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, it's it's a little interchangeable with demand gen at Atlassian, but you could think of it as both traditional B2B enterprise demand gen and also uh, flywheel PLG type of lifecycle marketing. Um, our, our customer base is so large that we have an, you know, an entire demand gen group just dedicated towards marketing to that existing customer base monetizing them in various different ways, um, including enterprise sales hands-off and self-serve motions, et cetera, across, the, across those funnels. Awesome. And so maybe to, to get started and to get us warmed up, I uh, wanted to do a quick uh, fire round where we'll spend a little bit less than, uh, than a minute per answer and potentially even just a, a yes, no answer. Uh, and so we'll start with uh, Sheila and then Jonah for uh, every question. But so 
to get us started, uh, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Yes. No for me. Ooh, okay. So, so we have a debate there. Interesting. Um, for people that are starting uh, to work on, you know, routing um, users or accounts to sales, would you recommend starting uh, PQL or PQA as the kind of like first mechanism to route uh, to sales? I'm going to keep it to this under a minute. I would love there to be an in-between where there's a PQT, which is product qualified team. Um, the reason I say that is because at Atlassian, we've got a broad set of products and each one, depending on the team and your function within the account, you might be um, showing propensity for a certain product. So I guess I'll, I'd start with PQL and try and formulate a decision maker team from there. I have the same answer. Um, if you're forced to PQL, I think it's a, a simpler place to start and there's less negotiation involved. Um, but that in-between state, once you get towards uh, enterprise customers, you're going to find that there's a lot of diversity within the accounts and then you'll need something in between. Awesome. Um, and then I know this has been a hairy topic uh, on, on LinkedIn that I've seen a couple of times, but should, uh, in your mind, MOPS report to RevOps or stay within the uh, marketing organization? We just had this conversation this morning. We are within the marketing organization. Um, I think ugh, it just depends. Um, I see, I can, again, like an in-between answer, which we might be going towards is having a function called revenue marketing ops. Um, I think if you, uh, and staying within the marketing organization, but I can see, I really can see both and I'm not quite sure. I think it all kind of depends on how aligned you are with the sales ops functions and the analytics functions um, that report on those revenue metrics. And today we're more oriented um, to the marketing organization with stronger partnerships in those areas, but we're not quite there to be on the same team. Yeah, my uh, my opinion on that one is that the, um, I, I think a combined GTM RevOps team is ultimately the more powerful structure. Um, and so uh, an ideal state, I think that probably is able to achieve more across the organization if um, if it can be designed that way from the from the ground up. Um, however, a lot of PLG um, based companies, uh, the sales motion is has a different place in the cycle, and in in those in those cases where sales is more of a um, a layer rather than a let's say a fifty percent handoff or more in many cases then probably the marketing organization is going to need more of the operations team support. So um, that'd be my guidance based on where, you know, you're at in your journey. Awesome. And, and last one, which I think is uh, kind of led to, to some extent, but um, in a PLG motion, should the SDRs roll up to uh, marketing or to sales? I'm, I'm, or I'm, I'm moving uh, or I'm um, inclined to say that uh, it should roll to sales. However, it all kind of depends on how closely aligned the product marketing and the product team are with the go-to-market sales um, structure. So I would say it's going to stay on sales. You still need a really strong partnership with the product organization since they can kind of speak to what those customer signals, in, signals are and what they mean within a product and kind of collaborate um, with both teams on um, the, the right path for the customer after those thresholds are met. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. I, I think they should stay in the sales organization. Um, however, I think one part of the marketing organization 
maybe not should roll up into the SDR team, but at least have an incredibly close connection to them to the point where I would say, ideally, you have your demand gen managers and maybe even some part of your ops organizations sitting with the SDR team, because ultimately a big part of what their function is, is to try to keep a healthy pipeline flowing to that team and getting that feedback. So I'd almost sort of flip it on its head. Like I think SDR should stay with sales, but I think marketing should actually move in to some extent with the SDR team. Makes sense. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton for, for going through these. And I guess like first uh, question, digging in, digging in a little bit into your, uh, your history at Atlassian. So over the past like four and a half, five years, the team has evolved quite drastically. And so I'm curious to hear uh, a little bit about the journey, how the, the team, you know, evolved from, you said, customer lifecycle management and more of this demand gen function into, you know, a more specialized uh, MOPS organization and any kind of learnings along the way. Yeah. And Jonah, maybe if you want to kick us off on this one. Let me start. Sure. I'll start on this one. Um, so the, the, the journey from uh, an embedded being embedded on a demand gen team to its own marketing ops independent function, um, that, that had a couple of components that I think were unique to Elassian. And then I'll maybe talk a little bit more like generally outside of that use case. And in our particular case, um, we were at a point earlier in development where we had the, the license and the liberty to build a tech stack and manage the data in a, in a somewhat controlled and, and firewalled environment from some of the larger aspects of the, uh, of the company stack and data and teams. And as a result of that, it made a lot of sense to have that really tight coupling and, and pairing. But then what happened um, not too long after I joined, in order to start to take the next step and what I you know, consider some of the, like, the really scaled enterprise journey, um, it then became necessary to start to think about product data and data engineering as an integral part of marketing operations. And at that point, that's when we really needed to form our own organization with our own resourcing and our own uh, you know, set of OKRs and our own set of strategies for how we were going to serve a, a larger set of the organization where um, in order to meet the means of demand gen and PMM and, and revenue marketers, in general, a lot of our conversations are now at the uh, go-to-market IT and the data engineering level and, the, and the, uh, the data science level, which as opposed to just the demand generation level. And so the, the stack there um, is much, A, it's much more proprietary, um, B, it's vastly larger data sets than you're working with in, in traditional like inbound uh, demand gen and demand gen related attributes, like, you know, things about their engagement through an automation system, like you're going way beyond those, those types of things. Um, and so the, the way in which we'd, we've had to really advocate and think about building out that, um, that team is one, just general principle. I'm sure many of the people listening to this have experienced this. Uh, there is a general lack of understanding of what marketing operations does. And so th the first thing is to really try to help um, the rest of your marketing organization understand what role marketing ops plays. And I think the there's categorically want to help understand what the connective tissue is between um, the marketing operations function and many of those other functions that I was just talking about and why it's necessary to have something tying them all together. And then the other thing is making sure that there's some very clear lines of ownership in terms of what marketing operations is uniquely driving and what the output of those efforts are going to look like. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the output of those efforts might be very specific things like this is a unique set of data that marketing operations is going to provide 
And here's how that data is going to feed back into the organization to enable all, all sorts of other things. And, you know, depending on your marketing ops structure, where that kind of sits and fits, um, you'll have, you know, different specificities in what that data is. Um, but then when you start having that conversation, then that helps the, the organization start to think about where the return on the investment is going to go. So, for example, if you're thinking about, well, we're going to invest in op heads, um, but those ops heads, not only are they going to facilitate things that are easier to grasp, like campaign execution, but then you're also going to start to think about, well, you're going to have much better targeting and segmentation data, and you're going to have much better analytics, which then in turn is going to improve over uh, your ROI overall as a result of the, the data quality and the initiatives and the, the rigor and the SLAs and the governance that are going to get put in place to that operations team. And then uh, executives of, or, or leaders at least, of various different groups within marketing and also sales are going to start to understand the way that that, you know, virtuous circle starts to work of what the marketing ops team is, is really providing more strategically to the, to the organization and their growth. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say before I hand off to Sheila on that topic is um, it's also very helpful for establishing some kind of ratio or growth template to understand when the business grows in the following ways, um, this is the kind of ratio you want to apply for the way that you're thinking about headcount in order to meet the demands of that growth. And sometimes that's a, a ratio you want to think about one operations person supporting X number of uh, revenue marketers. Sometimes it needs to be along product lines, depending on how your company is organized. Like if each product line is almost its own business unit, then that's a really helpful way, way to think about it. Um, and sometimes you have to think about it, you know, just purely in terms of uh, activities and strategic output. So it might be functional area, like you need to build out the stack and that's one group of people. And you have another group of people who are working on uh, process optimization in terms of ways of working, like your ticketing systems, et cetera. Um, and so those, uh, those ratios are very helpful so that when you see planning happening in other parts of the marketing organization that you're, you know, you're a, as a stakeholder of yours, um, you can start to plug into those conversations early and, and help guide them. Yeah, and I'll Super. I'll add to that. I think it's um it's an interesting we've had an interesting progression at Atlassian, and it's it's a bit unique for a company of our size, um a, you know a B two B software company, which is a lot of Atlassian's early success um, was from the flywheel and from a self serve motion, and it's always been really product led growth. This concept of B two B lead generation, demand generation, that traditional. Um, lead qualification to hand off to sales that's only really been around um, recently since like really right before I joined the customer lifecycle marketing team was formed. So just to give people an idea, we had 15 sales reps and we only went after 6,000 customer accounts and that was it. And we let the flywheel and the self-serve motion kind of take care of the rest. And then we have a huge dependency and partnership with our channel operations or channel team. Um, so since then we've grown quite a bit. Um, and, uh, but I think our foundation of being on the customer lifecycle marketing team has enabled us to then take a lot of the, the pieces that we've built and maintained, um, that kind of like end to end, um, acquisition to scoring to MQL, um, qualification and delivery. We've been able to then scale out a lot of those processes um, and a lot of those foundational principles across other teams and other go-to-market motions. Um, and uh, so that's that's been really important to have our, a strong foundation there, but kind of branch out into our own team so that we can 
start to, um, you know, break away from kind of pigeonholing ourselves into like just an enterprise, uh, an enterprise go-to-market team. That makes sense. And, and maybe, um, do you have lessons that uh, you could share with uh, people watching around, um, you know, launching a PQL motion and actually starting to, to go into this uh, motion of routing leads to, to reps and, and having kind of like almost like going into somewhat of a more traditional uh, marketing to sales handoff? Yeah, I can, I can take that one, Jonah, if you don't mind and pass it off to you um, if you have thoughts. So um, yes, uh, some, some thoughts that come to mind initially are um, just some, some recent examples where uh, we had some learnings that we're going to probably apply to the next couple iterations are that um, I think I, I kind of touched on this during the, the quick fire round, but having um, everyone sort of having a team that is responsible for um, the kind of like the, or having a business driver uh, that is driving the strategy of what that PQL actually means and then what the handoff and follow-up strategy is going to look like, including simple things like what is the goal of handing off this PQL to the sales team? What do we want them to do? And can we start putting some benchmark metrics um, to what that conversion rate is going to look like? Um, things like that um, might get lost in the shuffle, especially when you're starting to plan out PQLs because it does take different systems and different alignment um, in order to launch a PQL than say an MQL. Um, and the reason is, is you're likely going to have to work with your product team. You're likely going to have to work with your data engineering team. You're likely going to have to work with an analytics team and get those teams kind of talking to each other um, so that you've got, you know, the data in a place that's easily consumable. You've got whatever mechanism is actually going to define that PQL um, uh, set. And then you, you have a strategy from likely your product team, your product marketing team, and you know your growth marketing or your demand gen function kind of aligning on all right this is the threshold that actually means that we want to pass this is significant enough to pass off to sales um, and then following that all the way through with sales enablement so once you get these pqls what does that mean what's a, what's the correct kind of customer experience or the lead experience from there um, and having all those teams talking which traditionally doesn't happen in an, in an mql model um, so the, and having all of that documented, because like I said, when you start solutioning for these things, it is really easy to get in the weeds, um, and then forget what the whole point of, of, um, of the PQL is. So, um, so that's definitely some of our more recent learnings that we're going to apply to next iterations of PQLs. That makes sense. And I guess this is when we drop in the discount code for Confluence, uh, for people to document their, uh, their handoff flow. Uh, but Jonah, anything to, uh, to add on that? Well, that's, you know, that's spot on and very, very practical advice. And, you know, like Sheila said, very, very easy to overlook and, and sometimes even want to avoid, um, if we're honest, like trying to bring all those groups together, um, is not easy under any circumstance. And sometimes those circumstances can be challenging, but that, but that's necessary. The only thing that I'll add is that, um, what Sheila implied already is the definition. Definition is really important. Like what what is a PQL and coming up with that definition and going through the rigor in your mind to separate what's a product intent signal and then what's a qualified lead. Because those you can come up with a vast number of what those intent signals can be, but maybe not all all of them should be 
an actual qualified lead, which means it's going to be handed off, right? There's going to be some further follow-up or significant event as a result of that. Um, the only other thing that I'll add there is that uh, when going through that process, especially if there's a sales handoff, um, try to keep in mind that the way in which that information is surfaced to sales, like the definitions and the, the data around it, like if you happen to be a Salesforce shop and you're entering those into Salesforce campaigns, then it's going to be a campaign member. That's that PQL. Thinking through that in such a way that's very specific so that the sales team can really understand what it is that they're looking at, right? Because uh, it's already a fairly opaque, if we're honest, um, in terms of what an MQL is. Like, why did this thing MQL? Like, what's the data point that's helping a sales team understand? Like, oh, I get why this person's been passed over. I know exactly what to do to follow up. That's challenging enough. But it's actually even more challenging when it comes from a, a product signal because it's just one more layer removed from um, what it is that the sales team member is experiencing and looking at day to day about the person. They, they're normally not looking at that type of data, right? They're looking at other types of data. They're more thinking about a person's fit within an organization, right? And so finding ways to make it really, really clear what the expected follow-up should be and how to decipher what that PQL is and tagging those campaigns and those campaign members with names and descriptions and other data points is, um, is really important and something that we're still very much in the process of figuring out how to do. So if I'm understanding correctly, the way you're um, instrumenting the PQL today is through uh, the addition of people into um, campaigns. So you essentially have campaign membership for different types of campaigns that is going to highlight this is a PQL for this or that reason. And essentially the, the campaign membership is the uh, almost like the explanation as to why someone was uh, PQL. Yes, largely. And we have a few other things depending on the on the team. There might be something called a, a we've got a score, basically, which is an internal score that's calculated on how well someone is um, liable to convert. And that includes some things about their their product attributes like the like, you know, you can call it like the um, the firmographics of their organization and their entitlement data. And that helps us understand that as well. Um, but in terms of the behavior, then, yes, we we ultimately because we have an enterprise sales team, we'll flow that information through into Salesforce. Got it. And then the, from an enablement perspective is the expectation that for each campaign, there is a type, uh, either a sequence in outreach or, or some kind of defined, like someone who belongs to this sequence, uh, sorry, to this campaign should fall into this sequence. And that's like part of the enablement that you're doing to make it easier for the reps to know what to talk about. If, if it all works correctly, then yes, ultimately that's, that's the design. That's the yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, um, typical, uh, path is that they do get, uh, put into an outreach campaign. Um, and then there is some opportunity to, to raise their hand and talk to somebody live on a, somebody on our advocate team. And so that's usually the, the normal path. The reason why we use Salesforce campaigns and campaign members is Going back to my point on, we, we built a foundation um, of MQL delivery for our kind of our enterprise customers for a customer lifecycle marketing team. So they're used to measuring MQLs, MQL conversion in that way. Um, now that we're layering in PQLs, which is relatively new concept at, at Atlassian as far as like tracking it and delivering it to a sales team member, um, we're sort of uh, paralleling that process and just kind of slightly tweaking it so we can understand that these qualified leads are coming from the product, product signals, and these are coming from marketing. And that way you're able to, um, you know, you're not measuring apples and oranges because they're being tracked differently. We're 
you're, we're measuring everything in the same system. They're subject to the same kind of conversion process, um, et cetera. And so you can start to look at, and those are not the only two kind of sources. We, we track all of our leads from our partners. We track leads um, from um, other sources so that we're able to look at kind of the whole picture together and see um, where we can optimize across the life cycle. That makes sense. And and maybe looking back at the experience of launching this kind of PQL motion internally, are there is there anything that, you know, looking back, you would do differently? Uh, may it be, you know, starting by only having one or two reps work on this before rolling it out to a broader team? Or potentially, I've heard some people say not calling it a PQL and keeping it under the MQL nomenclature just so that people don't uh, get freaked out. Uh, yeah, curious to hear if there's anything that um, you would do uh, differently now uh, if you were to do it again? Um, I think one of the things I would do differently is um, we had a challenge recently where there was a there was a defined threshold for a PQL. Um, and what we weren't aware of was how many PQLs that that actual signal was going to generate. So we ended up doing all of this work and generating something that worked with, you know, our sales handoff strategy in Salesforce, but we didn't predict how many, how many qualified leads that would, would, um, uh, would actually create. So we ended up overburdening the team. Um, and it was a small team. It was kind of a team that was, was testing out this functionality. Um, and I think that's something that you can easily kind of predict, especially if you're working really closely with your analytics partners. And so that's one thing I would do a little differently because if you overload them, then the whole kind of motion doesn't have a fair chance um, because they're just spread too thin. And so if you kind of get buy-in from your, your sales leadership or your SDR function um, and kind of understand what their capacity is, and then you try and marry that with the threshold that you're seeking with your product and your product marketing team, I think that's... Um, something that you should do upfront rather than after the fact, because it then it ends up, it ends up being tricky to prioritize amongst all of those. That makes sense. Um, Jonah, anything on, on your end that you would do differently? In a totally ideal world, um, I would have preferred that we conducted a test with a single product, um, paused afterwards, you know, done like a, you know, a standard kind of Atlassian style blameless retro, and then, taken some of those learnings and incorporated those into some of the other products that are generating those PQLs. Because one, one of the challenges that we have is that the, the product infrastructure itself is different depending on which product line that we're talking about. And many of the teams started requesting PQL-like functionality. Sometimes it was something close to it. Sometimes it was a PQL itself. And uh, a lot of those efforts spun up in parallel. Um, and so some of the learnings that we then had to derive were sort of all happening at the same time. And I would have preferred to have really conducted a much more limited, limited test and then built some sort of process and template for it and then try to roll it out one, one by one. Um, but in our case, um, there's a lot of excitement around the idea of a PQL and sort of as one team heard about it, then other teams sort of wanted it. And now it's, um, you know, it's the next hottest thing. Nice. Uh, and actually, um, you know, bouncing off of that, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, challenges, learnings, anything that yeah worked well or could have worked differently when trying to get sales to adopt uh, the idea of going after product users. Because this I, we see is often a big challenge with companies where 
the reps are potentially used to work either, you know, inbound hand raisers or just, you know, content leads and switching to going after product users and product accounts is, is a very, very different initiative, uh, which can be scary. So I'm curious to hear, um, what did you do to overcome, um, that kind of initial fear and to really drive sales adoption of the, uh, the product led motion? I'll, I'll start off with this one. I, I think we've had some advantages in, in that area. Um, and the advantages have been because so much of our, our sales team is by and large trained on following up and, and further upselling, cross-selling, deepening relationships with existing customers, that the, uh, the idea of having a conversation around an existing customer's um, product usage and experience was a familiar one already, actually, even though we hadn't had a PQL, we were working with so many customers who had reached a certain stage of their existing product um, journey, and then we're going to take another stage in that journey. So um, that that there was actually quite a bit of momentum and learnings built into the sales organization um, already. So I think I think for us, like the the learning around that that enablement has more been around um, one: how do we get the volume right for people coming in, which is what Sheila was alluding to. And then I think the, the other element of it has been more around um, exactly how we're going to derive sort of like um, uh, stories and journeys that the sales team can then speak to in such a way that um, one is a sort of compelling sales message and speaks to the need that the customers are having. And then two, training them to have to look across um, a couple of different data points, which, you know, ideally we would be supplying and making that a little bit easier. Um, but that's been, that's been like a real challenge where we've had to say, okay, you, you know, when to understand if this customer is a good fit, we need you to look at, you know, this following campaign data, we, you have to look at these fields over here. And then we've got our, another internal system, which talks about some of their, their usage. And I, I would say that that's more of like a, an issue where there's just more to go on the marketing ops and sales ops side and curating like a real sales console that combines all that information. But um, getting getting sales teams to look across different systems has been, um, and think about like data, customer data holistically has been um, fairly challenging. Yeah, it's always challenging when they have to log into, into different tools, right? Like at the end, they just wanna like get to the right person, know what to tell them and uh, just be able to get on the phone easily. Yeah, that's right. E even when we've found ways to get the information directly into Salesforce, like through a visual force page, it's it's still actually tough to to get that page curated in such a way that it's coherent and clear. And also so that it feels like it's worth sort of prospecting within even just within Salesforce, that could be a challenge. Yeah, I would, I would um, agree with Jonah, we might might have not had the same challenges that the viewers here are facing with convincing sales of this new type of lead, mostly just because um, I, I think our, our reps have been used to try, I mean, they were actually welcome to it because it made their job slightly easier because we were sort of pre-vetting product signals for them and presenting them in a way that was, was something that they were used to with the kind of the MQL motion. I think something that really helped in our case is that the PQLs and the PQL definition for whatever product motion we were, um, you know, we were going after was really vetted um, quite extensively with our product analytics and our marketing analytics team. So they, you know, they came up with those signals because they looked at 
um, other customers who completed whatever motion we were going after and sort of backed into, all right, what did they do in the product or what kind of intent were they showing? Um, and then kind of came up with that definition in that way. So in a lot of ways, that alone kind of convinced the sales team that like we're using actual usage and user data and finding people that have done those same things and just surfacing it to you in a way that you're already used to. Another really important thing was that where we worked with sales ops and sales enablement is that we needed to have that automated piece where, you know, a, a sequence and outreach was automatically triggered if a PQL was met, um, things like that, so that they weren't, you know, going after them and cold calling them, um, presumably, and we were just giving them sort of more targeted content based on their behavior and then providing a way for them to raise their hand and talk to somebody when they needed to. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I think that uh, is one of the challenges that we see a lot of folks run into, right? So what I'm hearing is that um, with the anal an analytics team, uh, there were different kind of triggers that were identified or product signals where we're saying, okay, someone who does XYZ uh, is on the right track to uh, adopt long-term and potentially become a customer. So we want this to be a PQL trigger. So then uh, Mops builds that into a trigger that would push them into a specific campaign in Salesforce. Then there's a uh, work that is being done with sales enablement to say, okay, if this is the kind of folks that we're gonna be reaching out to, what is the right type of messaging? What are the features we wanna talk about? How do we talk to them? And um, that is done and iterated upon um, to make sure that then the reps have all these different sequences that are built it starts with that kind of analytics uh, um, insight originally. Is that correct in terms of kind of like how you went about building that PQL motion? And then you're obviously, I guess, on the mop side, tracking the outcome. That's what you were saying, like focusing on the goal and having a clear goal that you're tracking against and being able to go and see where there might be dips in, in conversion rate. Right. That's That pretty much summarizes how it went down. Yep. Got it. And in terms of uh, on on that front, uh, with uh, sales enablement, how um, how connected is Mops with sales enablement? Right? Are there requests coming from sales enablement to hey, we would need to have this persona field populated, or we would need to have this specific usage um, you know overview populated in Salesforce so that it's a custom field that we can reference in our um, liquid templating and outreach, for example? Yeah, we have a really close relationship with, um, we just call them sales operations. Sales operations and sales enablement are on the same team. Uh, actually, one of one of the lessons learned and something that I stress with our team is that, um, you know, it's really easy to just solution something for the sales team with the best intentions, but you really do need some, some buy-in and you need a strong partnership with sales ops and sales enablement to make sure what you're solutioning for them actually makes sense for their world because they're closer to those teams and the ways they work. So, you know, introducing a new field or a visual force layout from one of the tools that you've provisioned um, is not enough. It, it, you know, it adds to the noise potentially and it confuses them and they're not quite sure how to kind of link the whole process together and use the tools together. So vetting a lot of that and, and partnering really strongly with sales ops and sales enablement and convincing them that this is something that's going to benefit the sales team is super crucial before I think you roll anything out. And we've definitely fallen victim with, again, the best intentions, like this is going to be super cool. They're going to love this. 
but kind of missing the mark with how it's actually going to be used um, and the best way for them to use it. Only thing I can add to that is I, I would suggest that for these types of things, um, best for actually for marketing ops to try to drive that conversation with sale with sales enablement or sales ops and not not wait for them. You, you know, even if you lay out, here's the project, here's what we're trying to do, not wait for them to sort of like come back with questions and requests and the how, but try try to drive all that proactively um, up front. And even once you start getting into the the rollout, be be fairly prescriptive about like, okay, here's what the sellers we think we're gonna know. This probably means the data is gonna be stored here. Um, just because marketing ops is going to be in the best position to understand where all that data is and, and what's going to be needed rather than um, hope that sales ops and enablement through their discovery process is going to uncover all of it. It's, it's one more layer removed from them. So I, I see that as a key kind of a key, you know, part of the mops job, especially in the, in the early stages of kicking these things off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm often uh, sadly surprised by, uh, how few mops uh, know the layout of the reps. Like they, they understand, they've seen it. And sometimes when they open the layout, they realize, oh, wow, there's like so many fields and visual forces pages and all that stuff. And it's, it's hard to build that empathy for the reps without actually seeing what they see and trying to figure out, okay, if I have all of this information, how do I use it to, you know, put together a relevant message? And, and I feel like sometimes it's a, as technologists is something that um, I think we fall prey to where we start, you know, adding more tech uh, to solve for a solution without having done like the proper diagnostics potentially uh, ahead of time. Um, and actually that leads me to um, uh, a point that I'm always interested in, in hearing about, especially from, you know, a company like Atlassian with a lot of engineers. Um, what is your take on, uh, you know, the, the build versus buy um, when it comes to uh, to Martech and and maybe Jonah, since you were talking about your love for kind of like data and process, and uh, interested to um, to have you open up on uh, your take there. Yeah, so I I think the build the build versus buy conversation. Obviously, you have to be in a position where build is even even an option. And then the interesting thing that happens, at least that's happened for us at Alassian, is now. We're more on the opposite end of the spectrum where the question is, is buying um, even an option? So I'm just, for the sake of our, our audience, I'm gonna presume where there's there's your organizations at some sort of point where there's a choice or maybe you're seeing that you're getting towards that point really soon because you're bringing on more engineering resources and IT resources into your, um, into your stack um, and into your sphere. So uh, I think I think what, some some principles and some learnings that we've had um, in that area is that uh, the build versus versus buy on the build side, um, it's often uh, quite difficult to to realistically come up come up with an estimate in which building is going to be um, faster and more efficient than buying, um, even when it's necessary. However, that being said, um, the I think the point in which despite the fact that it may be more complex and more and and more time consuming to go the build route is when the nature of your data itself is becoming a blocker for any kind of buy options and and really what that actually means is that you're going to have a data model right the data model is going to be based on the way in which your database is structured and the database is going to be structured based on the way in which your product essentially like it consumes initial data from customers and then structures it in such a way that it's propagated, you know, throughout, throughout the business. 
Um, in order to, once you get to a certain point, both the volume and the complexity of that model is then going to actually become a constraint for any kind of technology that you're going to buy. That's kind of like one thing. And then the, the other thing, which is related to that, is you're going to find yourself thinking a lot about the types of transformations you need to make to your internal data in order to make them usable to any kind of third party system. Now, there's a lot of options out there, right? There's like a lot of great vendors that are doing really cool things that let you do ETLs with little or minimal um, data engineering in order to get that data in the place where you, you want it to be. Um, however, it'll, it'll start to get to a point where uh, you're going to be spending more time and effort just wrangling the data and try to somehow make it fit the, you know, the data models of the way that those consuming systems need to see them. And that's probably going to be a, a really major um, turning point in which you're going to, it's going to limit your, your thinking in terms of what you can actually do with it. So that's, that's one really big, big one. And then the other one, this sounds kind of obvious, I think, um, but, but in practice, it's kind of a different thing is really having a deep, like honest conversation about what your core competence currently is and what you want your core competencies to be in the future. Right. And that's the, the more interesting and difficult conversation to have. Like when we think about what does our organization really want to be really good at producing ourselves and where we're going to marshal our, our resources, like what should those things, what should those things be? Probably very few companies are going to answer unless you're in this business directly. For example, we want our, we want to have a real core competence around building a CRM, right? That's not likely to be an answer, right? And so most people are still going to turn to something like Salesforce as their enterprise CRM solution, but other things like having a marketing and product analytics, um, you know, model or data pipelines, which extract those data and be able to do things with them that helps us actually come up with a, like a PLG model. Well, that's an area where you, you may actually want to have a, a core competence. It's more important for you to have that as you understand more about what your, your customers are doing. So thinking in that kind of long-term way is going to help you land on which things you should still consider to be a, a build and which ones should be considered a, considered a buy and where like you feel like your core sort of engineering practice is ultimately leading. Yeah, makes sense. Sheila, anything uh, to add or, or thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with everything Jonah said. He's a lot closer to those decisions that are that were were and are still being made on our team. Um, I think one way to sort of satisfy um, those within the company who want to pursue building it is um, we definitely tend to invest in our tech stack where um, those solutions are a lot more customizable or extensible to our kind of like our first party data, which is super important to us. Um, so we definitely look for tools that are um, not kind of all or nothing, but potentially we could be, you know, taking a couple of features and then layering on with our own or some other point solutions that we've either built ourselves or already invested in. Uh, so that's sort of how we get around those conversations if they're really preventing us from moving forward with an initiative. Uh, but we've got a quite a healthy mix of, of homegrown things mixed in with um, third-party vendors. And um, it's probably gonna be like that for uh, as long as Jonah and I are here for sure. Makes sense. And and have you looked, or is there a different strategy when you're exploring something of potentially saying, hey, let's you know buy this tech to, test out emotion or test out something. And then if it works out properly, then comes the question of, does this 
uh, warrant being a core competency of the, the team and therefore moving away from the vendor into a, a homegrown solution? Or would you see the initial pilot more something that you would build uh, internally before considering uh, third-party options? I would say ideally, if you're going to consider a third-party option, is that it, it should have a, at least a medium-term outlook, if not more, just because the the effort that has to go into really making that successful um, becomes a whole lot of sunk cost very, very quickly. Um, and if you're going to then pivot off that, that's um, that's a lot of time and effort you probably would have spent doing something different. Um, so I, I would say in, in considering that, probably it's good to think like let's let's think at least four to five years down the road of this this vendor or this solution is going to be a really good fit for. Um, what it is that we're trying to do and you know of course you kind of roll with that sometimes it's very it's very difficult to actually um you know to actually predict the way that that's going to go um and then in, in terms of like you know should this yet yeah, turn into something that we're we're going to you know build um ultimately again I, I think that a little bit more comes back to like the more of the constraints around it rather than asking is this something that we should build ultimately i think the question is more is our internal data structure and our, you know, and our process going to be such that that is going to transform and grow so radically that there, you know, there will be no other way to work with it other than to work with it our, ourselves? Because if you find something that's a really good fit, it's so much better to apply all your energy towards, you know, then taking on other projects or working with that data rather than to think through like, okay, now how can we replicate all this internally? I'd rather, I'd rather just use the, the you know, the third party stack in that case and, um, and, and put my attention on other things. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> and, and last question, question, since we're, uh, unfortunately running out of time, uh, there's a lot of, you know, M and a activity happening like these past two years have, have seen like spikes there. And so Atlassian has been through a lot of acquisitions and I'm, um, curious to hear, uh, thoughts and learnings for, you know, folks either that are at uh, companies that are, are being acquired. So what does it mean if you're uh, a MOPS professional at a company that is getting acquired by a bigger entity and how to think about what that means for, for your job and how to position yourself, as well as as the, uh, you know, a MOPS person from the buying entity, um, what does that mean in terms of like, you know, bringing the two stacks together and like what things to start uh, thinking about anticipating? Um, and maybe Jonah, we'll, we'll start with you and we'll finish with, uh, finish with Sheila. Okay, sure. Yeah. I've certainly got more, at least recently experience on the, or, or the acquiring entity rather than being the acquirer, but I, I can, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so yeah, in terms of, um, I guess if you're, uh, if you're on that side, you're acquiring another organization, what, what to think about? Um, well, the, the first thing is, uh, thinking thinking through the cross-functional list of people that need to be involved in understanding what it means to take on another company's their you know their their customer data um, the systems that are involved and especially thinking about the go-to market motion and the way that that's going to be incorporated is is really key and those those conversations are usually going to involve everybody from the the marketers on their side like the you know the product marketers and the demand marketers and you know obviously the operations team um, you'll probably wind up talking to their their product and engineering organization to understand that, and then um, and then on the sales side, that's that conversation can almost be the most complex um, aspect of it because understanding the way in which their customer experience and lead handoff works can have 
probably some of the most nuances in terms of um, incorporating those, you know, those into your your target systems. So um, I would say big, you know, big learnings and things to things to look out for um, when doing that is that uh, mostly the first thing is to try to understand what the those timeframes are and, and how much like, you know, runway that you have to to work with before you have to have a, a total integration, assuming that that's what the strategy is, which it, it, it may not be. That's not always the case. Um, uh, but uh, I think a lot of time and attention and, and diligence upfront putting into looking at the customer data from the standpoint of how are we going to apply things like your marketing consent model to their existing data? You know, was their data collected in such a way that it can now conform to your consent model and you can use it and how to go through all those merges? That's a uh, you know, one of the non-sexy aspects of acquiring a company, but it winds up taking up a, a huge amount of time and thinking all that through. That's like one really big one. Um, another really big one is you'll you'll find yourself getting involved in asset inventories to plan and map out. And so the first thing that I would do is develop some really solid templates of ways you can start to do some plug and play and think about here's how we manage assets and here's how all those processes work. How do you do it? Where's all your stuff live and how we're going to bring all those things together so that it, it's really seamless and starting to integrate those marketing motions. Um, and then the third thing is uh, really thinking about, like I was talking about integrating what it means to integrate the, the lead life cycle that that company is following into the current one that you have. So obviously you have like the data and the system side of it, but what about the, the process and the customer experience and the, the sales handoff um, part of it? And so based on what the expectations wind up being of like that, that sales, strategy, you may find yourself in a position unexpectedly of having to support a new type of lead life cycle that you've never done before, because perhaps that has been part of the company strategy for acquiring this company. Like the, the goal might have been, we want a new type of close and we're going to we're going to deal with like customers in a, in a different time frame. So you may find yourself um, having to think through that. So I think the, the key there is to not to assume that the existing process that you have in place, even though you're acquiring another company, is going to be the way that um, now business is going to be done going forward or the only model. And you may have to start becoming very flexible and thinking about, well, how would we continue to operate in the way that we have? But we've also got this new way of operating um, as well and being very, very open to that. Um, maybe very briefly on, on the other side, if you're you're being acquired and how to think about your, um, your position there and how that's going to work. Um, I think the first thing is that um, there's going to be a million questions that are going to be asked of you, and you're going to be um, part of a, a lot of uh, interviews, obviously, to help figure out what's what's in the stack. Um, I think the the best thing to you know to start doing there in that process is to start to help relate back to the the company that's acquired you, the way that you work, and then asking them questions about the way that they work, so you can start to onboard yourself as quickly as possible in the way that their systems and their and their process worked. And of course, the more uh, open and flexible and inquisitive you are about that process, the you know the quicker that transition is going to be, and the more valued you'll be quicker. And I think the easier time you'll you'll have of it as you get to understand, um, you know, the new kind of business environment that you that you happen to be in. Super helpful. Yeah. So um, just being a part of Atlassian when we've made those acquisitions and being part of um, those pretty like very large work streams, I can't underestimate how big of an effort um, it is to undertake acquiring a company and then folding 
their go-to-market strategy and framework into into the you know the parent company. Um, we've done it a couple times, and um, we've been really lucky to um, have um, you know convince an exec sponsor that this is a really really significant undertaking, and it's going to require resources, both human and, and money, in a lot of cases, to actually get everyone prioritizing this effort because. Um, it, it's so paramount to get everyone aligned, prioritized in the same way, and dedicating those times and resource the time and resources, you know, at the same time. Uh, it just it takes a lot of people coordinating. Um, we've been able we were able to actually leverage um, an agency to help us facilitate that. Um, and what they really did is they didn't do you know the the actual um, combining of tech stacks or anything like that, but they really forced us to have conversations that we might have not had um, where we're really talking about like things as unsexy as like your consent strategy to like things that are more interesting like your your lead handoff and your um, your go-to-market strategy or your you know pipeline generation strategy um, I think one of the the really cool things about being part of that is we've used the, every opportunity to kind of level up the Atlassian way or go-to-market way so an example of that is, we acquired a company that had a really, you know, well built out and functioning SDR function, and Atlassian actually didn't have that at the time. And so we were able to learn about the way that they were operating that model and kind of adopt that into the Atlassian kind of global go-to-market strategy, which was a really cool experience. And then, you know, things as tactical as um, their tech stack, like what technologies are they using? where have they seen success? You're able to talk to people now that you're all part of the same company and really get kind of uh, unbiased opinions and, and look at kind of how the way things are operating and use that off as an opportunity to sort of level up your tech stack as well. So that's been a really um, great experience. Um, I think on the receiving end, I actually have never been at a company that's been acquired, but I've worked with other companies and other marketing ops and sales ops professionals. And the ones that have been the greatest to work with are um, ones that, yeah, you're gonna be in high demand and you're gonna be like the most popular person and my best friend throughout the process. And so it's 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 kind of cool to come together under that way It's um, and, and kind of welcome them into the organization. And hopefully they are going to be kind of contributing on your, on your team in the long term. So um, yeah, you're just gonna be, you're gonna be in high demand and hopefully that's that's flattering and, um, and that's kind of the start of a, a relationship where you'll hopefully be kind of operating a little bit more closely moving forward after that acquisition too. Yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> I feel like being in high demand is the story of the, the life of anyone in MOPS. Uh, but um, this is super helpful. Thanks a ton for sharing all these insights and uh, lessons from your time at, at Atlassian. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, what would be the, the best way for them to uh, reach out, connect, and potentially um, deep dive into some topics that um, would be helpful slash relevant to them? For me, probably the best way is LinkedIn. So it's just Sheila Head, and we can hopefully there's a link or something that we can provide at the end. But yeah, feel free to message me or connect with me. Um, that's this way. I'm still getting my TikTok career uh, launched, but until that happens, LinkedIn's the best way. Awesome. Yeah, Sheila's way way ahead of me on the TikTok front. I'm I'm way behind, but in the meantime, LinkedIn um, works really well as well. It's just uh, slash Jonah Cooperman, um, and yeah, we can provide a link. But yes, that'd be that'd be great and welcome. 
Awesome. Well, thanks a ton to both of you. This was really helpful and, and fun. I hope folks learned quite a bit during the session. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you very soon.